welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Before we get started with this episode, I've got one really big announcement that's really cool. Is me and my intern Cameron have been working on a store for the podcast. Um, so you can now get Political Philosophy Podcast merchandise, which is kind of cool. Um, Cameron, as you may know, redesigned my logo, so it's still um, the little sprouting plant, uh, but it's like really nicely artsy, like cell designed. Um, and you, you can now get that on coffee cups, coffee cups, uh, t-shirts, and um, a hoodie, a sweater. So this is really cool. I'm doing it through a company called Teespring, and the essential idea is that they're going to take care of all of the fulfillment and like shipping or whatever. So you can just order it there. They take care of all of that. And, you know, we sort of split the money, they're doing the fulfillment, and I'm giving them the customers and the, the logo. So that's just a really nice way that um, if people want uh, products uh, from the podcast, they can now get them. Um, I've had a look at some of their stuff. It all seems um, good and high quality and so on. We've started with quite just a minimal range. There's some um, apparel and a coffee cup with the podcast sort of... Um, logo on it. I'm going to be adding more lines as we go through. So if there's stuff you want to see with like particular quotes or designs, uh, let me know. Um, But I figured I'd just start off with like just the basics, um, see how that goes. So please do check it out. I got some samples for myself and they, they look really good. I'm really happy that I'm doing this. I'm not quite sure why it took me so long. And it's one more way that you can, um, uh, support the podcast, um, because as you know, I've made a commitment not to do commercial um, advertising on the show. I think that sort of um, cheapens it a little to be like flogging someone else's product. But I thought about this and, you know, am I comfortable with this? I thought, yeah, absolutely. It's something people have asked for to have like sort of merch from the show. And, um, yeah, we're finally doing it. So I'll include a link in the show notes of this episode for the store that you can check out. I'll also put it on the website and social media. So do have a look. Um, I've gone with quite a clean aesthetic of just, like, the podcast logo on white, which I really like. But I'm, I'm going to be bringing new designs in as we go. Um, and I'll sort of do that in response to sort of feedback and so on of, like, what people want. Cool. So let's get to this episode. This is one that I feel has been a long time coming. So, like, as long-term listeners will know, I've kind of been developing two frameworks for thinking about politics on this podcast. I sort of do them in my solo episodes, and then sometimes when I have guests, I bring up ideas and I talk to them about it, and then people write in and give me feedback. It's a very sort of um, unusual public way of doing political philosophy. Um, One of the frameworks I've been developing is a sort of classically liberal John Stuart Mill approach to politics. Um, which I've argued is um, sort of superior to um, contemporary liberalism and also points us in a more sort of progressive, egalitarian direction. The other is sort of what I've been calling a neo-Machiavellian or neo-Republican theory that's sort of somewhat like modern republicanism, but with some different elements. Um, And I developed that through my Machiavelli series, 
as well as through um, my episode that I did on humiliation, which probably received one of the best responses of any episode I've done. So if you're not familiar with all of that, um, that's where that sort of development is located, and you might want to check that out if, like, you're not quite sure what I'm claiming in this one. Because in this one, I think I've finally theorised how those two fit together. I think the way I've been saying it before is these are just, like, two different lenses you can look at the world through. They're both quite useful. Um in a sort of, like, soft anti-foundationalist way. Like, sometimes we want to look at the world through a liberal way, sometimes we want to look at it through this sort of neo-Machiavellian way, um, and I'm, I, I just sort of do both at the same time. I'm, like, ideologically schizophrenic. I think um, I've come up with a way of how they, like, click together that's um, a bit more theoretically elegant than that, but isn't complicated, like, it's quite a simple idea. It's a bit like, you know, those, like, clickbait things where it's, like, this one simple trick. I sort of realised there was, like, one simple trick. And it came about through me thinking about um, the types of political conversations we've had um, in response to the big protest movements we're seeing in America right now about police violence. And, like, a lot of the conversations we have about, like, norms and, like, you know, is it a norm that protest must always be non-violent? And I was sort of thinking about violence and liberalism, which is what I start the episode with. And I kind of, like, stumbled into a bigger theory of, like, how to make normative sense of contemporary American governance. So I'm making some quite big, big claims for myself here. And I just want to sort of put this out there, that this is sort of like a framework I've come up with. Um, I'm sure other people have done something like this, but I think the exact formulation as I put it here is something that's original to me. I'm happy to be corrected if there's someone I'm forgetting. And in general, I would love, 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 love your feedback on this one. One note I'll just make before I go in is I discuss the violence a lot in this and argue for a set of norms that might be quite different to what a traditional liberalism might seem to imply. Um, I want to be clear, maybe just for legal purposes, if nothing else, I am not encouraging anyone to commit violence, right? Um, and in general, I think when you look at the protests now, they're almost uniformly non-violent, and that seems to be the right thing to do at this current moment, and that seems to be sort of where we're at and what's working. So it's not like a specific commentary on that, uh, much less me advocating people go out and do anything. It's more a critical evaluation of the ways that we talk about the norms we have in this society governing political discourse and political disagreement? What are sort of the relevant standards that we sort of want all parties to agree to? And it's sort of a critical reflection on that, and my lead into that critical reflection is a series of reflections on violence. But I want you to understand this is more of a big-picture conversation. Please no one listen to this and, like, go out and, like, loot a store or something. That's not really what I'm saying here. Um, with all that said, um, yeah, I do arrive 
from a very, very conventional starting point. My starting point in this argument is the fundamental principles of, like, economic theory and a very classical liberalism. From, like, a very conventional starting point, I end up at something a bit different and, you know, maybe unique. I'm not sure. I'm not as widely read as some of the political theorists who listen to this. So um, please do give me your feedback on that one. Um... So, yeah, that's sort of what I'm trying to do in this one, is sort of think generally about norms, and in doing so, I think I come to a conclusion about how my variant of liberalism and my variant of republicanism click together in a way that's much more um, theoretically elegant than just sort of, all oh, they're two different lenses type of approach. So, let's get straight to it. This is a solo episode, one-parter, called Liberalism, Republicanism, and Violence. It's often been asserted in discussing the protest movements that we've been seeing in America in response to police shootings that liberals should always and in all cases be opposed to violence as a means of political engagement. All protests should be peaceful, more than that, it should be civil and respectful and responsible. We should be aiming to change people's minds and really have a sort of... Um, great public reason expression where the best ideas will will float to the top. Let's just even take the most minimal of those claims. The liberalism um, necessitates a sort of political pacifism. Well, this is clearly and obviously wrong, right? And I think it's necessary to begin this discussion by clearing the ground of some of the various assertions that get casually trotted out either by liberalism or its critics about what liberalism is, can be, and has been, both in theory and in practice. So to begin with, liberalism is not, and has never been, either in its theoretical justification or its practice opposed to violence. Liberalism was in many ways founded as an intellectual defence of the right to rebellion, the right to overthrow violently, if necessary, oppressive rulers who curtailed the liberty of their subjects. More than that, where liberalism has established itself as the dominant or one of the dominant powers within a state, it has always been quite comfortable with using the powers of that state to not only violently defend itself, but violently impose liberalism on others. That's always been the case. Nor can it be said that liberalism's primary justification rests on its unique ability to create non-violent environments. The argument would go only liberalism is capable of reconciling competing worldviews in a way that doesn't involve violence. Well, 
No, not really. I mean, liberal democratic states have proved remarkably stable over the years, but there's been a number of types of authoritarian regimes that have had a similar degree of stability, and the actual amount of violence involved in, say, policing and law enforcement and the prison system, you know, may not be that different between the liberal democratic state and the authoritarian one. And, like I say, Liberal states have not been pacifist states with regards to foreign policy, so it can hardly be said that liberalism is uniquely capable of creating spaces of non-violence. More than that, there seems to be this idea somewhat murky within liberalism or within a sort of faux-libertarian liberalism that there's a clear dichotomy between conversation and free speech on the one hand, and violence on the other. That dichotomy cannot be maintained in the face of history. You know, yes, there are types of conversations that are purely conversations and don't involve violence, and yes, there is just straight-up violence, but actually, most of the time, what's happening in political contestation is a little bit of both. You saw that exactly with the protest movement where I, that I referenced, where it was a bit of both. I think it's overwhelmingly peaceful now, but there was some violence going into it. There's lots of situations that involve a, a, a mixture of the two. There's a number of ways we can structure speech. You can have academic speech, podcast speech, casual speech. These are all sort of different languages we talk politically. Uh, you can have different institutions for framing that speech. And then even when it comes to violence, violence tends to be regulated, at, at least at a subconscious level, by sort of rules. If you step outside a bar to fight another dude, you sort of, there's a shared agreement about what's going to happen there and what winning that encounter would look like. Same with wars. You know, I said in my Ideologies of the Ancient series, if one army just deploys Napoleonic style on a field and the other goes and hides in the jungle, not much really happens there. There needs to be some sort of shared understanding about what's happening there. So the idea that speech is ordered and sort of civil and regulated and violence is essentially lawless is completely wrong. And there's many situations that involve both speech and violence. There's a huge middle ground to that spectrum there as well. So to recap, it cannot be maintained that as a sort of matter of abstract right or a freestanding norm, that liberalism is necessarily opposed to the use of violence in politics. It is not. It cannot be. Nor can it be liberalism's justification that it is uniquely capable of preventing violence. Nor can liberalism offer us a cheap and easy distinction between free speech on the one hand and violence on the other. That's a huge messy, sort of sprawling Venn diagram there. So, now that we've sort of cleared out the deadwood, as it were, I think the question becomes, so what is going on, or what is the sort of most defensible case for these sorts of norms of political engagement, you know, non-violence, but also like respect, civility, open-mindedness, these sorts of norms that liberals 
are often attempting to impose on political contestation. And I want to make a separation here between arguments about norms and arguments about efficacy. So, simply to take the case of politically motivated rioting, you could say, well, look, I just feel like it's not going to achieve what people think it's going to achieve, this will lead to a backlash, it's actually harming your cause to do it. That's one set of arguments, right? On the other hand, you could make a pro-efficacy case. You could say these riots have actually highlighted it in our national attention, have sort of served as like an accelerant that's led the protest movement to get the exposure that it's needed, and now it's really making an impact. You can see a lot of laws are changing, a lot of things are changing. So those are efficacy arguments. There's another set of arguments, which is simply that irrespective of efficacy, this is still something that we shouldn't be doing. As a general principle, this shouldn't be how we conduct political engagement. And those two can come into conflict with each other. And I think actually a lot of liberals feel quite conflicted in cases like this, in that they feel, well, on the one hand, I do sort of agree with the cause that people are sort of protesting about in ways that aren't maybe fully peaceful. Um, and there might be some good that comes of that. But on the other, it just seems to me like this, you know, this is just a norm that we should all be abiding by. So there might be a case between, the, a contradiction there between the specific case and a sort of more general principle. I'll come back to efficacy, but actually I just want to focus on the general principle side of things. Because to say you're conflicted is to acknowledge that there's sort of two different things happening there, right? I want to focus on norms. Um... What's going on? What are the arguments that we could look at that would help us make sense of, like, what's the best justification for what liberals are really saying here? Um, and to do this, I thought this up, and I'm quite pleased with the analogy, but I suspect a lot of you are going to hate it. I'm going to draw an analogy for a set of arguments in microeconomic theory that... Um, create the theoretical justification for certain forms of free markets, and the arguments in liberalism that create the justification for a certain set of rules and norms and procedures that justify liberalism in the political sense. If you're, like, sympathetic to neither of those projects, bear with me, because I'm not going to go with it where it might seem like I'm going to go with it. But I'm going to treat both arguments as valid here. Both the argument for free markets and the argument for sort of freedom as a, a set of political liberal institutions. One thing to note just before we get started is I regard these arguments as largely independent. Um, you could have both, or you could have one without the other. So you could have a state that isn't particularly free in terms of it's not politically liberal, but it does have free markets. You can have capitalism under authoritarianism, right? And conversely, you can have a state whose politics is regulated by liberal rules and norms, but has a much more, like, social democratic type of economy. Um, and you could see examples of both, both of those states around the world. So you can have neither, you can have both, and you can have one without the other. These aren't... These are, these are parallel arguments. 
in terms of implementing them. I'm just going to draw attention to a potential analogy between the way these arguments are structured that I think is um, quite illuminating. So let's start with the case for free markets, and I'm actually going to change terminology here and go from free markets, which can mean any number of things, to perfect competition, which means quite a specific thing in, ec in economics. It's one very specific type of free markets. And this is kind of the center of the bullseye for like what like classical economic theory thinks a market should look like. There's this idea, it gets called um, the first fundamental welfare theorem in, in, in economics, which sort of essentially says, under these conditions, the market that will result will it's actually quite limited. It doesn't even say produce the best outcome. It says meets it meets certain efficiency criterions. It will be Pareto efficient. Um, I'm not going to get into like all the nerdy language of it. But what it essentially says is this: when you have a large number of buyers, a large number of sellers, an interchangeability of goods, and perfect information as well as rational self-interest on all parties. That will that sort of set of underlying conditions <clears throat> will automatically produce a set of outcomes that we might deem to be quite good and um, quite desirable. So one outcome is that um, under that system, uh, price will adjust to the point where supply equals demand. That's pretty classical economics, right? But in other words, without you having to regulate it, the amount of goods being supplied will be equal to the amount that are demanded at a set price point, right? So you might think that is quite a desirable property of the system, right? It sort of just gets on with it and does it by itself. Now, another consequence of perfect competition is, again, remember, large number of buyers, like think plus 100, large number of sellers, again, think plus 100, you'll actually get quite an egalitarian system. And this is a um, sort of like, I think, something that gets missed about this model, because one of the things that will happen, I'll try and put this in the most straightforward language possible, is the price will fall until the price of a good is what it costs to produce it. There really won't be profits in this system. Why? Well, because again, imagine there's a hundred people all selling the same good, and the customers have perfect information. They're aware of exactly where everyone's prices are at. Well, then, say everyone's selling the good with a 50% markup, one of those hundred people is going to realize he can capture the entire market by he or she, sorry, um, selling it at only a 40% markup, and someone's going to do a 30 and so on, until it hits the point which it can't fall no more, which is that you know, people won't start selling the good for less than it costs to produce it. And so you'll actually get a system in which you're pretty much just paying, no, not pretty much, you are just paying for what that good costs to produce. And there won't be, unless there was going into it, there won't be huge build-ups of wealth. So we often say capitalism naturally produces a sort of like, you know, huge concentrations of wealth and inequality. But under this model of what capitalism's supposed to do, it would do the exact opposite. 
it would be quite an egalitarian system in many ways. And so the, the metaphor I'll use is if you've got like a machine that produces certain outcomes or things, right, and there's a number of dials on it, when you set those dials a specific way, you'll get this outcome. So, you know, you have a large number of bars, large number of sellers, rational self-interest, perfect information, comparable goods, something like that, right? If there's any economists on here who want to absolutely, you know, go into the real details of what I'm saying, that's not really the, the point I'm driving at. So it's sort of an if-then argument. In, and I think it's correct, actually. Like, from what we know, when the conditions of perfect competition are met, the outcomes that are predicted in this model are realised, or at least partially realised. The, the question then would be, well, okay, but how often are the conditions of um, perfect information um, actually met in the real world? And I think the overall consensus amongst almost all economists is somewhere between almost never and absolutely never. Um, but I'll get back to that point. But that's a way of sort of thinking about it. Let's move on to an analogous thing with liberalism. Now, instead of the economy and the production distribution of goods, instead we're going to look at what, how we might structure and regulate discussion and the production of ideas. And again, you might imagine we have a number of sort of dials that we can turn. What's sort of going to be the optimal setting of dials that'll produce good decision-making? And good decision-making I don't take as, like, brilliant on itself, but in a societal sense, if you have good collective decision-making, that's presumably going to lead to, like, uh, just good welfare outcomes for the community, right? So none of this is, all of this is just a consequentialist argument. So what are the various dials we could have? We could have how constrained or regulated is speech. Um, we could have the sort of level of education. We could have um, levels of power, concentrations of power, stuff like that. Uh, degrees of inequality, I think. Um, and so liberalism in the political sense, and I'll just call it political liberalism, following rules. I think liberalism is more expansive than that, and liberalism can have things to say about who we are and how we should live our lives and so on. I'm just, for the sake of this argument, going to just isolate the, the political component of liberalism. Capital P, political, collective decision-making. And the argument for that sort of liberalism, I think at its best, is quite analogous to the argument for perfect competition. It's something like this. If you set all these dials a specific way, that'll produce a sort of optimal conditions for collective decision-making. And with the dials set that way, you would expect the system to naturally, naturally is maybe a bit of a dangerous word here, but sort of automatically um, start engaging in collective decision-making in a way that's more likely to lead to truth. I say more likely. Liberalism is not foolproof, right? But what are those dials? I think um, freedom of speech, freedom of information, the ability to receive information from a wide variety of sources. Um, I would say like quite high levels of education amongst all the people within the political system. They need to not just um, be able to 
freely speak and freely access information, they also need to sort of have the equipment to critically evaluate it. So I'd say quite high levels of education. Limited and accountable power. There can't be just like one person who gets to override everyone else's decisions. And I would say limited and accountable power applies at least a rough equality. It doesn't have to be perfect, but like really extreme divergences of wealth, I, I think just are arbitrary and unaccountable power and are hence illiberal. Another condition, another sort of dial you could turn to set at a particular measure would be the roughly equal ability of all people to participate within collective decision-making and to have their voices heard. There wouldn't be people or groups of people who simply weren't listened to. And there's a pretty good liberal defense of that from Mill in terms of like different groups of, in society will bring different knowledge and experience to the table and trying to like listen to them all together um, is likely to lead to sort of wiser decisions. And then finally, where is the dial um, set for like violence under that? Probably pretty down to zero, right? You would use violence to like defend that system from external threats, but within that system, um, violence wouldn't be a tool that was used. And then the claim would go something like this. When all of those dials are set that way, um, collective decision-making is much more likely to be truth-seeking, and as a result, is much more likely to um, deliver uh, certain goods that we might care about, like welfare or freedom or flourishing or autonomy, to the um, to the sort of people subject to that collective decision making, um, and I think that's uh, essentially valid. I think that's a correct argument. I'll, I'll tone it down a bit, and I'll say those dials set that way will produce sort of good collective decision making and good outcomes relative to all the other systems which we might feasibly implement at this point in history. So I think you can probably imagine some sort of really utopian system that would go better than liberalism, and hey, maybe we'll get there someday. But out of all the ones that have been sustainably tried in practice, I think the, the sort of liberal way of setting the dials is superior to the conservative way, and it's definitely superior to the authoritarian way. And that's actually an empirical claim that's sort of testable to a degree. It's a huge empirical claim. But I think if you look at sort of the broad sweep of history, it does seem to be borne out. And if that's not really intuitive, let me give you a sort of micro example. Because that sort of way of setting the dials can apply at any level of decision making. It can apply at the state or it can just apply in small groups. So I was thinking about this in context of like a lot of the organizing work that we've done. And one of the things people who work in organizing and nonprofits will tell you is our decision making is horrendous. There's, a, there's an account on Twitter called Shit Nonprofits Say, which is just all about how like lethargic and ineffective we can be at making decisions, and when we do make decisions, we often don't make good ones. However, I think the reason for that 
is a lot of the condition, the, the sort of dials we have set, are set in quite illiberal places. So if you work for a big institutional non-profit, there'll often be a clearly defined hierarchy of arbitrary and unaccountable power, and liberalism would tell you that's a suboptimal condition. And when I think about it when it's gone really well, it's when actually the, the sort of conditions have met roughly what a sort of classical liberalism would imply. So I'm not, I always try and avoid giving like specific things, but I remember one organising effort I was sort of loosely involved with, where it occurred outside of, it was people from sort of different groups, um, like a predefined arbitrary hierarchy. Um, but that said, it wasn't completely anarchic or chaotic. There was sort of a common understanding of what we were trying to do. There was some sort of structure in organisation, like people had defined roles. But all of our decision-making was done by consensus. There was no final arbiter. We just made a sort of um, agenda. We went through it point by point. Everyone could participate in the conversation, but no one was allowed to dominate the conversation. Everyone had a high degree of relevant information. Everyone had a lot of years' work experience in this, and they knew what they were talking about. So they weren't just able to give and receive arguments, they were able to critically uh, evaluate them. And it just really, really, really worked well, right? It, it was just very effective, much more effective than it would have been had there been arbitrary and unaccountable power, or had there not been high levels of education, or um, had some people been shut out of the conversation, or some people allowed to dominate it. Any one of those things would have messed it up. Now, here's what's interesting, and here's the point I'm driving at here. When one of those things looked like it was threatening to happen, we all kind of just organically worked quite fast to shut it down. So there was, you know, there was a point where one person was really trying to, like, make everything their own, and whenever someone was saying, okay, this is what they're doing, say, nope, that's not what we're doing. So in other words, trying to sort of assume for themselves a position of arbitrary and unaccountable power, and they had to be told quite sternly, you need to sit down, right? So, so in order to... And this goes to what I say about violence, if you map it up to the state. In order to sort of preserve that really effective method of decision-making, it needs to sort of have self-defense procedures. Like when someone's trying to grab the dials and twist them one way or the other, when those dials are set up optimally, when someone tries to do that, they need to be told, get your hands off the bloody dials. Now, certainly the case with violence, if you think about just like a few dozen people doing an organizing effort, right? If someone had started saying, you know, you, you, you'll do as I say, or, you know, I'm going to come round to your house and beat you up, that person would have been, to put it mildly, a threat to the continuing efficacy of that de decision-making procedure, and they would have to be reminded quite forcefully that they can't do that, right? And so, map it up to society. Now, what I haven't fleshed out here is democracy. I think the model of liberalism I've explained necessitates some form of democracy, but whether that's sort of you know, representative, or like how it's structured, or how many parties they are, I'm not going to go into that here. I think it necessitates some form of democracy, but I'm more just staying on the liberalism side for now. If you map it all the way up to society, then I think you see something similar. People recognise that liberalism is the best system. 
when all those dials are set a certain way. And when someone tries to rejig one of those dials, or sort of act outside of those norms, liberalism has quite a strong self-defense mechanism, which is necessary for it continuing. And I think that's the best sort of explanation you can give of why you sometimes get quite hostile liberal reactions to ideas that they may well agree with. It's about the preservation of liberalism, right? In the same way as the guy in the meeting who's trying to, like, take it all over or whatever, we might agree with what his specific point is, but nonetheless we want to preserve that liberal method of decision-making. So I think that's what's going on here. Now, Here's the question, though. I said, how often does perfect competition occur? And the answer is, like, basically never. How often does this sort of political liberalism occur? Uh, sometimes. Um, and, like, it's not like an all-or-nothing thing. I think sometimes particular societies get quite close to it. Sometimes they're a bit further away from it. But also, as my example suggested, it can exist at different levels within a society. You can have a sort of generally liberal politics at one level, but not at another level. But actually, overall, I think a sort of pure model of um, political liberalism has been, its implementation has been more widespread in the world than has been this economic model of perfect competition, which, like I say, actually occurs, like, somewhere between almost never and never, right? Um, nonetheless, people have become really attached to this idea of perfect competition. But like I say, I find both of those models valid, and I think both of those claims strike me as true. Now, I can already hear all sorts of, like, what about this is coming from... What about this? What about this? Coming from... Um, you know, the, the, the more sort of lefty parts of my audience. So let me do exactly what you want and go right back to economic theory. It's exactly where you wanted me to go with this, right? So a lot of people get really obsessed with this idea of, like, perfect competition because it seems to be a proof that free markets are the best system. However, economic theory then pretty swiftly goes on to say something else, which is has much less penetrated our public discourse, which is this. Again, if you were sort of imagine a machine with a series of dials on it, it says, first, when the dials are all set this specific way, the conditions of perfect competition, there will automatically arise a process which will generate, um, let's just say the best outcomes. Actually, the claim economics makes is a little more modest, but let's just say the best outcomes, right? It then goes on to say, if one of those dials is set differently, the optimal condition of the other dials might also change. Let me say that again. When one of the conditions of perfect competition is not met, the optimal, con the optimal sort of setting for the other conditions may then also change. Let me give you an example to make sense of that. One of the conditions of perfect competition is that there is a large number of suppliers, a large number of, like, corporations, let's say, all producing the same good. Well, what about if that's not the case in the real world? What if the market for a particular good is captured by a monopoly? 
or by a large number of a small number of firms, right? Well, in that case, getting a sort of optimal outcome, given that that dial is at a non-optimal position, might also be different. So you might want, then want to start changing the dial on price controls. Under perfect competition, there are no price controls whatsoever. However, under an oligopoly or a monopoly, it might well be optimal to have price controls. And there's two common sense explanations I can give you for why it might be optimal to have price controls there. Um, one is it might be your goal as a policymaker to return the market to a state of perfect competition. In other words, to allow lots of new competitors to come up, or to maybe even aggressively go in and break up these big firms so you once again have a large number of suppliers. Well, that doing that will necessarily involve changing the other constraints around perfect competition. You'll need to violate the constraints of perfect competition in order to get back to perfect competition. So you could encourage new firms to enter the marketplace by imposing controls on the monopolist. You could break up the monopolist, which is sort of a violation of this non-interference idea of perfect competition. Um, or you could sort of like heavily regulate them so it, you know, or give subsidies to people entering the market, all of which would violate the terms of perfect competition. But in other words, if you want to get back to perfect competition, you're going to have to at least temporarily violate the conditions of it. I think that's common sense, right? The other is, maybe we don't get back to perfect competition. Say the dial was set at the wrong setting, and it just got jammed. Like, say uh, a particular market is, is, is um, dominated by two big firms, like Apple and Microsoft, or something like that, right? And say we can't change that dial. Well, even if we can no longer get back to perfect competition, we still might want to change the other dials to positions different than what they were. So again, take price controls. Assume the market's stuck. Assume that there is two big firms and really nothing. It's just a path dependence thing. Like, nothing's going to change that, and it's politically impossible to... Um, really do anything about that, which may well be the situation we're in, right? Even accepting that, you're if you think about, is it optimal to have zero price controls? Will we get the best social outcomes there? Or to have some? And I think overwhelmingly economic theory would say you want to have some. So in the case of, like, a few big firms dominating a marketplace, immediately one of the price controls they'll bring in um, is that... Um, uh, the firms can't mutually agree on prices. Because if there's only two firms, and they say, hey, let's both jack our prices up by 100%, and they sort of have a, like, bargain, then the sort of customers get screwed, and they end up paying way more than what those products are worth, right? Um, so most states will enforce a rule that you can't do that. Now, that rule would be unnecessary under perfect competition, because if there's like a hundred different producers, it only takes one of them to undercut the rest, right? Um, but in a duopoly, two big firms, it would be very necessary to have that rule. And more generally, if you think about a monopoly supplier of a, a really critical drug, so like a pharmaceutical company that might have a monopoly on a particular product for which the demand is highly inelastic, then clearly it might be optimal to go even further than that and act
effectively tell that company, you cannot sell above this price. And again, governments often do that with monopoly suppliers, which is merely to say if one of the dials gets stuck at a certain position, a lot of the others will have to change too. So in light of that theoretical discussion, let's ask this question. What's wrong with the sort of hardcore libertarian claim that government intervening in the economy, um, the government attempting to regulate or set prices, will always be destructive and lead to a, 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 a suboptimal outcome, or just like a, a less good outcome than what was happening before. What's wrong with that claim? Well, specifically, that claim would be true under perfect competition, but untrue in uh, any other sort of economic model. So like, or not necessarily true under another economic model. So the idea that like actively setting prices will always produce bad outcomes is true under perfect competition. It is not true under a monopoly market, right? And so I want to try and get really clear here about what the libertarian is getting wrong. Now, we can debate how sincere, you know, the libertarian's claim here is. Is it really based on, um, you know, a belief in economic theory, or is it more about protecting established power? I think that's an open question. But, but let's take the libertarian's claim as sincere. Let's say they really believe this, right? What are they getting wrong? How do we combat that at face value? And I've tried to get this as specific as I can because I think something very analogous is happening with liberalism. The libertarian is attempting to enforce rules on the non-ideal reality as if it were ideal. Let me say that again. They're attempting to enforce rules on a non-ideal reality as if it were ideal. So in this specific case, they're acting as if we're under perfect competition when we're not. And again, if all the dials are set a particular way for perfect competition, then moving one of those dials, so say more price controls, would be bad. However, if some of the dials are already way off and possibly stuck at positions that are suboptimal, then the, the position of those other dials may well, and in fact likely will, also want to change. So I think something like that is true of um, what's happening with liberalism. And why I both understand the sort of impetus behind these sort of quite tight regulations or norms, I guess, that they want to impose on how speech should work and how it should be non-violent and civil and respectful and so on, but also think I think they're making a pretty big theoretical mistake in the same way that the libertarian is. So, concretely, when all of the conditions are sort of, you know, positions on the dial, for political liberalism are met, you want to leave them that way and respond quite aggressively to people who want to start changing them. So if you think about the small-scale example I give you 
where we did have this group of people who was actually really effectively making collective decisions, like we were doing it really well, and someone comes along and sort of wants to say, well, I'm just going to be in charge of all this now, that person needs to get shut down. If someone came in threatening violence, that person needs to be shut down, right? So in a situation which is, I won't even say perfectly liberal, I'll say sufficiently liberal, um, you want to leave the dials alone, and you want to let the process run. That's true of a small group, and I think that's probably true of like a state or a larger political community as well. But if only some of those dials are set at a sort of sufficiently liberal position, and some of them are set at quite different positions, and perhaps even some of them have got locked and stuck in at different positions, the others might have to change too. Now, that's obviously intuitive in practice when you think about the history I mentioned, that liberalism has always been okay with violence, right? And you can see that, you can make sense of that with thinking about it this way, right? Because if you are not in a liberal position to begin with, the mechanisms through which you get to liberalism might involve doing things that would violate how you would behave under liberalism once you got it, right? So, you know, if you're already living under very strong authoritarianism, violence might be necessary to overturn that. Liberalism has always had a sort of right of insurrection in it, right? Um, so under pure liberalism, no liberal has ever pretended that this, this sort of liberal method of free speech and exchange of ideas and so on is, like, in and of itself sufficient to bring about liberalism because it's, it's not possible under, like, a sort of totalitarian regime. You just can't do it. They won't let you have this free speech and free exchange of ideas, right? Liberalism is an optimal con way of doing things once all of the conditions are met, right? What about, though, and this is the under-theorized case, I think, what about instead of Im imagining a dichotomy between, you know, hard liberalism or, like, you know, fully liberal and complete illiberalism, complete tyranny or authoritarianism or totalitarianism, what about imagining a state of quasi-liberalism? So some of the dials are sort of set at the right liberal position, but some aren't. Now, this is where I feel like economics, maybe, and this is why I've used the economics analogy, economics maybe has a, a better handle on this than liberalism does. Because in economics, if you say, okay, all the dials are set this way, uh, what does that look like? What are we going to get? Let's say, oh, that's perfect competition. This is what you're going to get. You say, okay, now I'm going to take this one dial, the number of firms, and um, I'm going to just dial that right down to one. What does that do? And they'll say, oh, that's a monopoly. This is what it looks like. This is what it does. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we might want to change some of these other dials in order to get an optimal social outcome. Or what about this um, perfect information dial? What if we turn that off? And they'll say, oh, that's decision-making under uncertainty. Here's the model. Here's what it looks like. Liberalism, I, I feel like, tends to assume a binary here. Whereas what about, let us just say, we have freedom of speech, Everyone can access different opinions, but the, there is arbitrary and unaccountable power. There is unequal access 
to being able to speak your mind, and there are large inequalities of wealth. Well, what would you call that? I'd sort of call that quasi-liberalism, right? And so, like, what's the model there? What does that look like? And where do the other dials have to go? Right? And let's just ask yourself this question. Is America more accurately described as a fully liberal or even sort of sufficiently liberal state? Or is it described as an authoritarian state? Or is it described as a quasi-liberal state? Well, using the model I've just put out, it's quasi-liberal, right? There are some of those dials that are sort of approximating what liberalism should be. And then there are some that are way frickin' off. Like, it's not just like, you know, there's always going to be a bit of unaccountable power, even in the sort of, you know, best democracies that we might look at along these measures. Um, but you might say they're still sufficiently liberal. There's still enough constraints around that power that this sort of idealized liberal decision-making can sort of take hold, right? America, that's not true. We do have free speech. We do have a very open ideas environment where everyone can go out and access all sorts of different points of view. We do have rights of political participation, but they're distributed unevenly. Um, we do have, in some senses, quite well-defined personal liberties, um, but not in others. We do have very good educational institutions, but again, access to them is distributed unevenly. And we do have very heavy systems of arbitrary and unaccountable power. Indeed, I think it's okay to use, like, Republican language here and say systems of violent domination. You know, we live in a country where the police kill 1,300 people a year, sometimes under just, just obvious homicides, and nothing really ever happens about it. Well, that if that isn't arbitrary and unaccountable power, yeah, what is? Right? Like, and this is one where I think the liberal and the republican can find common cause. You can call it arbitrary and unaccountable power, you can call it domination, but we both agree it shouldn't be happening, right? The way the police are allowed to operate is a sort of, yes, it's to do with racism, yes, you can express it in terms of domination and unfairness, but it is also profoundly illiberal, right? This is not where the dial should be at. To use my metaphor, I'll give you another one. The power employers hold over employees in this country is definitely a form of domination. It's definitely arbitrary and unaccountable. And I would say it almost borders on violent domination. Like, if, if you can, at a whim, not just cut off someone's economic means of support, but cut off their ability to get health care, which they might be depending on for their life, or their child might be, that's pretty close to violent domination, right? Now, I know there's sort of nuances and complexities to that, and there's, you know, public programs for healthcare, and there's different systems in place, and it's not as if employee healthcare is all that great anyway. But, but overall, big picture, that is definitely arbitrary and unaccountable power, which is necessarily illiberal, right? And there's a few other examples I can give, but I think big picture, you know, I would call America quasi-liberal, whereas I might give the la label sort of generally liberal, um, at least according to this sort of model of liberalism that I've set up, to say maybe some European democracies, because the European democracies will still have arbitrary and unaccountable power, they'll still have uneven distribution of sort of right to speak and education and so on, um, but those problems are less 
and the arbitrary and unaccountable power isn't as extreme and it isn't as baked into the system in the same way. So, like, I think in a you know, sufficiently liberal state, you could still have, like, a local mob boss who um, exercised a certain amount of violent domination. But, you know, that's something there are you know, law enforcement mechanisms of dealing with that. And, you know, once it was dealt with, it would be gone, right? And there's always going to be stuff like that. Whereas in America, it, it is structurally woven in to the whole system, right? But nor, I think, reasonably could you call America an authoritarian state. Like, well, I can still get on this microphone and say more or less whatever I want, right? Anyone can hop on the internet and access whatever ideas we want. And there still is meaningful, albeit curtailed democracy, as well as a lot of public discussion and public reason and so on. So I think it's best to say America's quasi-liberal. It, it meets it under some conditions, and it doesn't meet it under others. So the question becomes, economics handles this very well. Economics, you say, okay, all the conditions of perfect competition are met, Oh, cool, great. This is what will happen, and these are the sorts of norms that you'll need to preserve it, i.e. just keep the dials where they are. Um, okay, let's say the dial for number of firms drops to one. Oh, cool, that's a monopoly. This is what it looks like, and these are the sorts of, like, resetting of the dials that you'll need to do. What's the liberal equivalent of that? Okay, this is, like, sufficient political liberalism. Very good collective decision-making procedure. This is what you'll expect, and this is what you need to do to preserve it. Let's keep all the dials. Okay, let's say we take a society that's sufficiently liberal, and we just turn one of those dials up. We turn up the dial for violent, arbitrary, unaccountable power, past a sort of low level of there's always going to be people behaving in a thuggish way, but right up to the point where it is a part of the structure of the system. And then let's say, you know, we maybe mess with another couple of dials as well. But then, what is that? And then, how do the other dials need to change? What's the model there? And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this. And then I was like, you complete idiot, Toby. It took me like a day to realise that I've spent the better part of a year and a half building exactly that model without really realising that that's what I was doing. So this sort of neo-Republican model I've been building up and sort of porting in from Machiavelli, I don't think it's an accident that it seems uniquely applicable. Not uniquely, sorry, that's the one word, but like highly applicable to American politics. And then other forms of politics, not as much. So the model, real simple, I'll just go through it, says there'll always be like two positions in society. People with the powers of domination and people without. The people with those powers of domination will routinely use them badly. They'll use them in ways that aren't in their rational self-interest, but they want to do anyway for psychological reasons, and I've really um, put a lot of weight on acts of humiliation as, as a, a way that that power gets used. So humiliation, to my account, um, is using dominating power such that it becomes obvious and undeniable to the people it's being used under. So, for instance, 
a police officer who has the power of life and death, apparently we've decided, over a black man he stops, might humiliate him by asking him to, to pull down his pants to be searched. It's, it's humiliating because um, it, it's not something they would ever do if there weren't that arbitrary power of domination. Or humiliation can be violent. The sort of knee to the neck, I would say, isn't just an act of humiliation, but it has a humiliation component to it, which is why I think people reacted so badly to it. Now, humiliation is dehumanizing, it destroys the status claims that we make for ourselves, and as a result, it leaves people feeling very angry, often for very long periods of time. And so what you'll get as a result of this dynamic, in which there is dominating power, and it's used to dominate and humiliate, is you'll create like a long-run pressure build-up within the system, and occasionally something will spark and set it off, and you'll get a huge, sometimes like quasi-violent, backlash to that dominating power. After that, three things can happen. One, those in positions of domination just crush the uprising, in which case you get stability, but a weak stability. It weakens the state. Two, the explosion is so successful, it just, like, destroys the entire state, and you get to, like, anarchy, essentially. Or three, something in between those two happens. Those in a position of dominating power are forced to, forced, they'll never do this voluntarily, give up a little bit of that power, and those in a position of domination gain a seat at the table, gain additional protections for themselves. And in that is located freedom. Freedom as both it secures negative liberty protections for the dominated, but also freedom is that in that collective coming together, um, that there is an, an act of the collective reclaiming of their humanity, which was stripped from them by these acts of... Uh, of domination. Now, there's a descriptive component to that, and then there's a norm component that follows. So take the example of, like, you know, monopoly or something. Economic theory would say, well, under these conditions, this is how this firm will behave, and their predictions tend to be quite accurate, right? There's a descriptive component to this. You're saying, under this condition of quasi-liberalism, in which people can speak and exchange ideas, but there are also systems of violent domination embedded within that. This is sort of how this will go. It won't go that way under full authoritarianism. Under full authoritarianism, like these sorts of large-scale rioting and whatever, I mean, they happen, but they just get crushed. Under full authoritarianism, it's like violent revolution or nothing a lot of the time, or some sort of coup or something like that. No, this is a, this is a quality of, like, quasi-liberalism, I think. So... Let me be really explicit about the claim I'm trying to make here, and how I, it's so dumb that this has only taken me recently to fit it together like this. Just as monopoly in economics is a model for what happens when some, but not all, of the conditions for perfect competition are met, analogously, this sort of neo-Machiavellian republicanism that I've been constructing is a model for what happens in a society when some, but not all, of the conditions of liberalism, political liberalism, are met. And, and here's the punchline, just as under monopoly, 
the optimal economic regulations are different than they would be under perfect competition. Under quasi-liberalism, the optimal norms governing collective decision-making are different than they would be under full political liberalism. So what does that look like? Well, let's just take the case of violence, which I started the topic with. What would this Republican model suggest as an optimal norm in that society? Well, Machiavelli actually gives us one. And I spent a little bit of time marvelling over this when I did my Machiavelli series, but in his defence of what I think we can essentially term riots within the Roman Republic, he doesn't defend them by saying they were non-violent. He doesn't defend them by saying they were civil or they contributed to public reason. He defends them by saying really not that many people died. That's his standard. And I think that really is the sort of norm that falls out of thinking about this Republican model again. One of the dials has gone way up, like the violent domination one. So some of the others are going to need to be adjusted as well. Why? Because structures of domination, especially like this extreme violent domination of I get to walk the streets and just kill people if I feel like it, you can't reason people out of that. Look at how cops have responded to criticism of this. You need to treat us with some respect, right? You can't, we're not going to talk them out of it with persuasion. Now, if we lived in a fully authoritarian state, we'd be left with the choice between subservience and some sort of coup. But we're not. There are other power structures within the society that are ameliable to some more classically, you know, there's the sort of political and legal power structures on which the police sort of coexist with and depend on in order to continue their violent domination. So it's not the case that we're necessarily saying we want to do an armed overthrow, but, but nor can it be the case that we're imposing a, a set of conditions, a much tighter set of conditions that, that would apply under full liberalism. And it's, you've also got to recognise that under quasi-liberalism, it's usually the case, especially because quasi-liberalism is often the result of historical racism, right? Um, it's, and as it is in the United States, it's often the case that even the sort of avenues of change through liberal means are highly unevenly distributed. Black people just have much less ability to be a part of the political conversation. And to demonstrate that, I've got my sort of liberal hat on for this one, right? Um, I don't need to sort of reference these big diaphanous concepts like white supremacy and say America is a race. No, no, we can just go to statistics. Like, um, a black vote for the House of Representatives, because of the way the districts are structured, counts about the same as 70% of a white vote. It's only 50% in the Senate. Black people tend to have diminished access to, like, powerful positions in our society where, you know, they could really have a voice and, like, yeah, how many, you know, like, CEOs of huge corporations are black women, say, right? We also tend to, um, just, like, not, white people tend to just, like, not be very good at listening to black people, right? And you see that, and this is a narrative that has emerged 
in these sorts of protest is like, we've been talking about this for a long time, and we've been showing you these videos for a long time, and we've been taking a knee, and you wouldn't have that, and we've been voting people in who say they're going to do something about it. And actually, you know, to be fair, a few of them have. Like, I'm not going to say, like, no reform efforts have been undertaken, but I don't think anyone would say that they're sufficient, right? We've been doing the peaceful protests. You know, maybe this actually just needed a little bit of accelerant poured on it in order to sort of take it to the next level, right? That's an argument people are making here. Now, one thing I want to note here is when evaluating the norm under a sort of um, quasi-liberal society, which will be governed by this sort of um, neo-republican mechanic in which positions of domination are abused and there's continual waves of backlash against them, is that we have to look at the motivation and the outcome. We're not just impartially administering norms. So in terms of, like, the ability to really have something furious and, like, burn a building or something, when it comes to our moral evaluation of that, we need to ask what's that happening in response to, what's it trying to achieve. And Mill says this, he has an essay on insurrection, and his first thing is like, is the insurrection happening as an opposition to injustice, or is it happening as a way of like attempting to maintain injustice, as was the case in the American Civil War, which whatever they say was fought in large part to protect slavery. And so the norm has to be something like this. Under quasi-liberalism, where people have access to those institutions to make changes in a liberal way, that should generally be your first port of call. But when people are shut out of that and subject to violent domination, the standard has to be much further out, right? If their goal and possible outcome is to... um dismantle structures of violent domination, the, the, the thing has to be like, you know, much more like Machiavelli's. Try to avoid actions that might lead to high loss of life. Something like that. And again, this goes to the point I made at the beginning. It's not a simple dichotomy between speech and violence. There's a huge grey area. And in that grey area, it's actually, like, surprisingly well regulated. It's very ordered. I see what's happening in America as part of, like, a very clearly structured form of political participation, because, look, these sorts of angry backlashes to violent domination are not new, you know. We had the LA riots, we had the riots when MLK was killed, we had the riots at Stonewall, which um, launched the modern gay rights movement, which I would also sort of offer a defense of, along similar terms, in that you have people whose cause is worthy, but there, there seems to be a clear structure. Like, riots tend to go on for quite short periods of time and then potentially lead to larger movements which are non-violent. Again, I sort of think of them as like an accelerant. And there's a defined role. They're not... It's not arbitrary. There's, there's specific acts people are engaging in, like, say, property destruction. But they're not going out and, like... Even though it's undirected, they're not, like, going out and blowing up a federal building. Like, that sort of attack tends to be um, much more 
the response of right-wing or religious extremists, right? That sort of, like, wholesale terrorism. That's not how people behave. And again, on the side of the state, there's sort of a regulated response. They'll try to protect property, but also they understand that you can't just go and shoot all the protesters. And when Trump had the peaceful protesters cleared out in order to do his bizarre Bible photo op, everyone sort of understood that an important norm had been violated. The fact that it was violated doesn't mean it's not a norm. A lot of the military spoke out against this. Like, everyone, there's clearly a quite well-defined set of rules for how these things go down, that even if no one could, like, write down all the rules, they're still aware of them. By analogy, you'd be buggered to define all of the words you use in a particular sentence, but you still know how to use them. There's a sort of language of, like, quasi-violence here that we've all sort of learned. And again, according to my, like, neo-Machiavellian theory, it is what you would expect to develop in the same way as you would expect a monopolist to raise prices over and above what you would get in perfect competition. You would expect this sort of mechanic to develop. And what I want you to just note is how not liberal this is. There's clearly a political conversation being had here, but but nobody's pretending that they've got to the place where they're doing what they're doing because they read some research and had a reasoned argument to it. I think everyone understands that the violence and the protests that are happening are, are an emotional backlash. It's coming from a place of emotion, not reason, surely. There's been this pressure build-up over time, but it wasn't like a planning committee got down and said, OK, we've studied the circumstances, and our liberal decision-making tells us now it's time to have a protest. And even having a protest, like, what are you doing? You get a whole load of people together in one place and you shout stuff, and as a result you expect public policy to change? Well, what's the logical connection between those things? It's like swatting a fly and thinking your photocopying is going to get done. And yet public policy is changing. You know, a lot of cities are doing really big reviews of their police department rules. I just saw, for instance, like NASCAR said you'll no longer be allowed in with the Confederate flag, which I imagine is kind of a thing at NASCAR. Um, A lot of our politicians are responding and sort of stepping up in ways that we might think still don't go far enough, but it's a lot better than where they were before. Why? No one pretends this is anything about liberal discussion or argument. Right? No one pretends it's anything to do with that. You know, Bill de Blasio today, New York mayor, has been, oh, we're going to unveil this, we're going to do that. Whereas just the week before, he was defending the police. There is absolutely no pretense where he comes out and says, well, I I thought I was defending the police for these reasons, but now I've been made aware of this research and this scholarship on this, and I've heard some really persuasive arguments, and this is exactly how I've changed my mind and why. No, he's responding because he's under pressure, and because he understands that... Something is happening here. There's some force that's being exercised on him that's hard to really, like, cash out and explain here, right? It's not like a voting coalition's been mobilised against him. This might translate to that. But it's not even about that. It's not about the evidence or the argument. This is a way we've found of managing, and I say managing, political contestation in a society that's partially liberal but also includes structures of violent domination. 
this is a form of regulating that. So again, liberalism always says liberalism is the only way you can regulate the, the, you know, profound disagreements between members of society without violence. Well, no, it is a way, right? And under full liberalism, you should be able to regulate most disagreements most of the time without violence. Under quasi-liberalism, we found a way of regulating it that involves, like, sort of violence. But it still has quite clearly defined limits. And people say, oh, what if the riots get out of control and they start a civil war? And that's a risk. I'm not saying it's not. But, like, that's basically never happened in American history. And when we did have a civil war, that was a decision made by elites, right? Mobilizing popular support behind them. I, I, you know, more often, riots have turned into peaceful protests, right? It's a way we found of, like, a sort of middle ground of how we contest and challenge particular forms of domination, which, like I say, I don't think we could do through a purely liberal method. Um, and in a way that's been quite good for the country. I think it's been good for all of us that, that gay people have been more fully, although not completely, accepted by society. And I think if you look at the police killings thing, this is something that disproportionately affects black people. Um, I think black people about two times higher than the national average to get shot by police. But that still means, like, quite a lot of... about 500 white people a year are getting killed by police. And it's something we kind of ignored in the form of domination that we've just sort of allowed to persist. And I sort of think black people are doing a great service to the country by bringing this problem to our attention and telling us it needs, it needs a solution. And in a quasi-liberal society, the methods of doing that are quasi-liberal. I'll give you another example. Um, this sort of stuff about, like, the free speech wars and, like, you know, you've got to engage in a particular way and the sort of, like, IDW Sam Harris types who want to sort of enforce a very, very sort of tight and rigid conception of what happens in conversation. Right? That might make sense in like certain specific academic local contexts. But in the context of the United States generally, have you seen how we talk to each other? Right? And you like you get your feelings hurt that oh Tom Cotton isn't allowed to publish an article arguing for fascism in the New York Times. Again, I think the norm needs to be pushed way back. Under full liberalism, you would want to actively promote and encourage all sorts of different voices. Under quasi-liberalism, I think the restraint is much more minimal. I think the restraint is something like the First Amendment. Like, the government shouldn't actively be arresting people for their speech. That's it. But, you know, in a society in which we have powerful people arguing for the most illiberal things in the world, we don't need to be giving them extra oxygen, right? In a society in which in many ways we're battling over if we will become a liberal society, or remain a quasi-liberal society, or you know, slide further into authoritarianism, you know, we're not saying that people can't go out and hear different views. Of course they can. There's all sorts of different views out there. I'm saying we're in a fight that we can lose, and we need to be platforming our views. We need to be giving a voice to the people who've been shut out of this debate, black people, gay people, great examples of that. and. We don't want to, like, give a New York Times byline to bloody fascists, right? So in both cases, 
what liberals are doing is they're trying to impose a set of norms on our conversation, on our political contestation, as if we were living under full liberalism. And in the case of the norms that these IDW types want to impose, one, they they impose them very hypocritically. But two, even if we take that to be sincere, have you seen the country we're actually living in? Like, you're trying to impose something from, like, Plato's Republic onto a state that, that is sort of equal parts enlightened and barbaric, you know? It's the same thing that, the econ- that I was talking about that the economists do, where you try to impose the rules from the ideal case onto the non-ideal case. But the relevant norms in the non-ideal case are just different, and we can't expect a pure set of liberal norms to produce the best results here, and we see that they don't, right? So I want to be really clear about what I'm arguing here. I'm not arguing that the urgency of the case trumps the liberal norm. A lot of people will say, as people were deba- debating this on one of my Twitter posts about, like, in the UK, where there was the statue of the, the guy who owned a slave trading company, and they tore it down and threw it in the river. I guess this group of people did it. And people say, I feel really conflicted. Um, you know, I, I do agree they should have taken the statue down, but, like, the way they went about it just didn't feel right. What I'm saying is essentially, in the case of taking a statue down, like illegally, you don't need to feel conflicted about that, right? You don't need to feel conflicted, right? I'm not saying there's a general norm we have of liberalism, and then there's specific cases that might override that norm. I mean, that might be the case in some circumstances. I'm saying the norm is wrong. The norm has to change. Right? And liberals can't be in the position of demanding that everyone conform to the rules of an order that doesn't exist yet. To, to, to sort of put it bluntly, we're demanding of the most powerless people in the society that they abide by all the obligations of liberalism without receiving any of the benefits. Just as, conversely, the people in positions of violent domination, or the people supporting them, the political authoritarians in our society, which is at least one of our political parties, right, they're demanding the benefits of political liberalism without observing its obligations. They're saying, we get to have our pieces in the New York Times and talk on college campuses and, yeah, but we're not going to do anything to uphold the other aspects of liberalism. Indeed, we're going to actively undermine them every way we can, right? The norms we have governing our society should reflect that. And to some sense, they do. Like I say, with these protests we see, there seems to be a script, and everyone seems to understand when, when we've gone off script. Now, it's not the only set of norms. Like, fundamental norms in a society are just as contested as policies are, right? So I think there is this vague, like, implicit awareness of this, like, let's just call it Republican set of norms, set of norms adapted in response to quasi-liberalism. There's a sort of liberal set of norms that's often sort of just getting in its own way and, like, acting as if this is a liberal state when it isn't. 
And then there's this more traditional set of norms based on a sort of nostalgia for a past you know, utopia that probably never existed, but a utopia significantly structured by forms of, you know, gender and race and class domination. There's people who want us to get back to that, and you can see that. The relevant norm in Trump's head is that, like, black people shouldn't speak out at all, ever. That seems to be a genuine principle for the man, right? And so there's different sets of norms that are being proposed, and we sort of have to navigate them. What I'm saying is that liberals should sort of accept this, like, Republican set of norms, because I think it's kind of inevitable that violent domination will be used badly to antagonize and humiliate and dominate the people under it, and I think it's inevitable that, you know, in a state of only quasi-authoritarianism, where, where people don't have enough power to, like, change it through liberal means, but they're not completely crushed either, that you are going to get these periodic backlashes, and we see it. They're just a common feature of American history, right? So the norm, we should accept that norm, that this is a legitimate form of political engagement that has on balance been very good for the country. Not just the people directly affected, but all of us, I think. This is how political contestation is going to proceed. Right? So the question is, how do we structure it the best? Well, ideally, we don't want these sorts of angry backlashes to be crushed completely, nor do we want them to, like, tear down the state. So I think the norm has to be we give a lot more leeway to them than we would in a fully liberal society, but there's still a line. Like, we're not saying, like, you can blow up buildings or stuff like that. And, and usually they don't, right? Usually that's right-wing extremists who do that. Um, and I think that, you know, and you could flesh out that norms more fully, but I think liberals have to accept that we're living in a society whose political contestation is best regulated by something other than liberalism. Because that society itself is only partially liberal, right? That's what I'm saying. I'll give one final note, which is that of freedom. There's obviously a Republican ideal and a Democratic ideal. Here's where I think they square off. Republican freedom in the sense of a collective reclaiming of humanity that has been denied to you by systems of domination and humiliation through coming together like this is a good, is a particular good that is available to us in a quasi-liberal society. In a fully liberal society, that value would not be necessary because people wouldn't need to reclaim their humanity because it wouldn't have been stripped from them in the first place, right? Should that trouble us? Are we, like, losing something by moving to full liberalism? Eh, no, I don't think so. Other forms of freedom, of autonomy, of development, of flourishing, will become available in a liberal society where they weren't in a quasi-liberal society. Right? And that shouldn't worry us. Freedom has meant different things at different times, and people have had very different felt emotional experiences in the past that are kind of lost to us now. That's, that's the run of human history, right? And to some degree, the society we're in now, you know, we might sort of pursue both at the same time, right? So that's just a note on how I see those two conceptions of freedom going together. I think the question is then, 
Can a liberal be a liberal in a quasi-liberal state, accepting the argument I've run thus far that the optimal norms for political contestation in that state will not be especially, will not be liberal, they'll not be fully liberal at least. Yeah, I think that's, that's completely easy enough. Take the analogy of economics. Can you be someone who wants to get us to perfect competition while living in the reality of a monopoly provider? Well, yeah, of course, right? Of course. But the way you get to perfect competition isn't by insisting all the dials of perfect competition have to be set exactly where they are. It's by realizing, you know, in the long run, you'll need to um, actively intervene in that economy to get it back to perfect competition in a way that you wouldn't under perfect competition, and that in the short run, the conditions will have to be a bit different. You might have to have price controls, say. Similarly with liberals living in a quasi-liberal state. You can still believe, and I do, that liberalism is the best ultimate outcome and it's the place we're trying to get to, because look, all of, all of what's trying to be achieved here is something liberals should want. We should not want the police to hold this violent, arbitrary, unaccountable power. We should not want workers to be so dominated in our country. We should not want the extreme inequalities of, 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 of wealth. Now, once we dismantle all of those things, then there will be a conversation to be had with radicals about do we try and preserve some markets? Or, you know, do we go full socialism? And I'll probably diverge with the socialists there. But, in, but until then, which is the next generation or two, even in an optimistic scenario, until then we're all on the same team. And historically, big progress has come when liberals and socialists do work together, right? So even if the ultimate end point might be a bit different, we all agree what has to happen next. We all agree that, like, all of us on the left, that the police have too much power kill too many people, that too many people are in prison, that our society is too equal, that unequal, sorry, that workers don't have enough rights. So liberals can fight for liberalism quite easily as an ultimate destination, right? And in doing so, we'll find a lot of allies, and that's where I think we should be. Is there a contradiction, though, between saying, well, you know, I'm a liberal, but like, you know, I still feel a bit conflicted by, like, some of the much more messier forms of political engagement that we see. I don't think you should. I'm not actually saying you have to engage in it personally. Indeed, if you're, like, a white middle-class college professor, <laughs> the most useful thing for you to be doing right now is not going out and burning down a target. Clearly, right? Um, the most useful thing to be doing is exercising a position of, uh, if I can use the word privilege, the comparative privilege you have as someone whose voice is listened to and who does have access to making liberal change in a society. Use that for all of the things I've just talked about. You know? Right? And then just don't feel too conflicted when people who are at the, literally at the other end of a gun right, who are excluded from our society in so many ways, who are violently dominated, when they colour outside the lines a bit. Colour outside the lines is the wrong one. We need to push the lines out a little. So, so what I'm arguing, essentially, is a sort of reverse Rawlsianism. Rawls, if you'll remember, sort of imagines liberalism as sort of like the rules of the game that everyone can agree to, and then makes space within their comprehensive worldviews 
for just enough that the, the rest of what they believe can be compatible with a liberal order. Now, I think it's telling that in rules, liberalism occupies the centre of the, the, the sort of thing, the Venn diagram, the bit that, of the overlapping consensus, right? That's liberalism. What I'm saying is, actually, you know, we live in a society where I think a variety of different groups can form a sort of overlapping consensus around this more like Republican set of norms. The Republican set of norms, in other words, right now, at that moment, this moment in our history, that's the overlapping consensus. And liberals are not the sort of norm setters. We're the group that has to reconcile those norms with our fundamental comprehensive moral commitments. So we can still be liberals. And like I say, you can be liberal on a small scale. Like, you, you can practice liberalism within small groups as much as you can practice it within society. And we can sort of push for liberalism as an ultimate destination. But there's a good, but, but like, the set of rules by which our society is working, and I think given the realities of the world, like, like that is the sort of optimal one, that's something we have to build into our liberalism. That's how I would think about that. And we won't align with socialists or radicals perfectly on everything, but we can all sort of agree to that loose framework for change. And actually, I think we can all sort of agree on, like, the next steps that need to be confronted through that. Like, like exactly how far you move the dial on police. Like, is it reform? Is it defunding? Is it abolition? You know, we all agree the dial has to be moved, right? So I think there is a good overlapping consensus on the left. And on the other side, there's simply a battle to be won between forces that support an economic form of organisation socialists don't like, that radicals don't like, but also liberals should, be just, should just see as our enemies because they are profoundly illiberal, right? So to conclude, in an analogous way, to economic libertarians, mandating rules from a perfect model onto an imperfect reality. Liberals often act as if we are living in a fully liberal state and demand that everyone conform to that. Those demands would be just and proper were we living in a liberal state, but we are not, right? Under a quasi-liberal state, we would expect the mechanics of political contestation to work differently, for powers of violent domination to be abused and backlashes to that to occur. The norms we have will then necessarily be different. If we want to move the society to a place of full liberalism and dismantle those structures of violent domination, we will have to accept that a set of norms different to liberal ones is the most effective way of getting there. More cautiously, if we merely want to get the best results within an illiberal system in the short run, those set of rules will still be better than the liberal set of rules. This does not require us to give up our liberalism. Far from it. And liberalism is far more than its political decision-making components. It is a full philosophy of life. The full philosophy of life. The belief that, um, just say, 
um, increasing toleration and acceptance of a huge plurality of non-conforming gender identities and sexualities and lifestyles, that that's a really positive thing to be welcomed. It's, it's people more fully, freely, autonomously expressing themselves and finding pleasure and meaning in doing so. That's just a liberal conviction that it's great to have, right? There's all sorts of areas of our lives where liberalism is personal as much as it's political. What I've said doesn't demand that we give up that. It doesn't demand that we think that ultimately the place we want to get to is full liberalism. However, it does demand that we give up this conception of ourselves at the centre of the overlapping consensus. Rather, we're a part outside of the current overlapping consensus that needs to accommodate within our comprehensive worldviews the norms that are actually optimal for that society in its current quasi-liberal step state of historical development. Mm -hmm.